0: The way I think, I think our language is just fading away. I'd see some little Indian kids, i try to talk to them. Mm, I don't know what you're saying. Mm-hmm. I said, you don't understand? I said, no. Mm-hmm. So they hired me to go to St. Ignatius to teach Indian language. Sometimes I get mad. <laughs> They could talk just as good as I am. Their folks are just as Indian as I am, but they didn't.
1: Welcome to Podcast IRC Conversations with Indigenous Scholars to Advance Understandings and Gain New Knowledge. Hosted by the Indigenous Research Center at Salish Kootenai College.
0: certain time I get mad, and sometimes I say, no, I'm going to teach. See what will happen later on. If they want to be like that, it's okay. There's a lot of them I told me, you're never going to change your, your color. You're going to be brown, you're going to be black, you're going to be red, whatever. I said, you're never going to change it. Don't be like that all your life. But try and keep your, what you are. Mm-hmm. You're in and stay in. Mm-hmm. But a lot of them don't want to be.
1: All right. So that was a little short clip from Agnes Vandenberg. So Agnes Vandenberg was a pretty pom- prominent uh, um, person around here in the, in the, um, in the times of, uh, I guess you could say change when things were kind of turning over from, from the fifties. So she was part of a big movement here to bring back the older ways and bring back the, a lot of the teachings that, uh, she picked up along the way. She was, um, she was a born, born around, uh, 1901. Uh, and she was, uh, uh, born right here in uh, Valley Creek was just it's just north here of R. Lee. And um she took this uh opportunity to take what she knew and just spread it around everywhere. She was kind of one of those people who was not uh didn't was not too concerned about who is she was sharing knowledge with. She just wanted to make sure that this uh knowledge was passed on and and kept and, and recorded and, and in some manner. And in that little clip she's talking about something that's kind of important. Yeah, even today. So this was this little clip was from I, I believe 1979, and she's talking about the struggle she has with the uh, with hearing uh, the young kids not being able to understand her or understand the language. And she continues to talk about uh, getting hired to teach in the school and how she doesn't really get why some of the kids who she was teaching whose parents were just like her and they didn't know how to speak speak the language and so she's just kind of talking about her uh, struggles with that and her her uh, her kind of desires to to keep that language alive and some of the struggles so this kind of brings up a really important topic even today we see that same struggle today with the older folks today even the ones who are deeply involved with language revitalization this uh, this struggle to to um or, or i guess i should say how to how to get people excited about learning how to come up with a way that seems to be uh, better in line with kind of our traditional pursuits and even some of our more modern pursuits so um now that we're uh, we're getting a chance to dive a little deeper into this topic, you know we have the folks from the Language Conservancy back again, and um, hopefully we can kind of dive deeper into some of the work they've been doing, and in particular, kind of um, maybe tackle this first kind of question that I have, and maybe um, some other folks have the same question, but you know, really, how do we how do we utilize What really just the state of of what we're in, how do we really utilize that to capture the biggest audience and to get them to sustain themselves, really to to motivate themselves to want to move forward? And we did talk about that a little bit with these with these language groups where one catches on and the rest want to follow suit. But you know what are some other ways and some other methods that you've seen or or experienced in your in your work and the time with the language conservancy? Um, l- let us know some of those uh, some of those details if you have them. Go ahead, jump right on in there, right, partner. Yeah,
2: uh, maybe I'll just jump in. Uh, there so, you go. Uh, this is uh, Will May. I'm the executive director of the Language Conservancy, and um, you know, listening to Agnes, uh, I was thinking to myself, you know she was, uh, you know, ringing the alarm bells in some ways, you know, yeah. 40 years ago, you know, trying to get people to, um, to, to, to recognize the the situation before it was too late. Yeah. And, you know, there've been uh, other leaders like her, you know, in every community, uh, trying to ring those alarm bells in different ways. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they got traction and sometimes they didn't, you know, and it's always, a uh, you know, scary as, you know, more and more of the speakers pass on, and few of, fewer of them are there, and eventually you're looking around, and there's just a handful left, and yeah. you, know, you begin to really wonder, is this possible? You know, can we turn it around at this point? Yeah, You know, and there was, uh, in some ways, it's like, um, you know, a jet plane that's in a dive, Right. Yeah. You know, we need to do everything we can to pull that thing out of a dive. And that dive means, getting it out of the dive means getting real speakers speaking again, right? And yeah. then, and, and, and eventually that more second language speakers are being produced then we're losing speakers who are first language speakers, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's kind of the goal for, I think, every program out there is trying to figure out how do we get those numbers up of young people able to be proficient and eventually fluent in their language as a, yeah. fir- as a, as, as, a thing. And so there's a lot of, you know, logistics, so to say, to get to that point, you know, it's, and it's a, it's a team effort. We, you know, we say, and it's not just, you know, there's not just one immersion school that can do it or yeah. one uh, program or whatnot. You know, this has to be, um, an effort across, you know, school districts and families and everything like that, and and it is yeah. taking, it does take a movement to turn that around, um, but also to you know kind of create a vision of what what is this going to look like down the road. You know, like let's say, you know, we 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 know working with communities that everyone's at a different place with their language revitalization process. And if you look at uh, the Maori or Hawaiians, for example, you know, that's 40 years down the road for a lot of communities to get to that place. Right. Yeah. yeah. And their problems don't stop either. They've got a whole slew of problems that, you know, we can't even imagine, right. Because yeah. they are not even there yet, but everyone's got to start somewhere and you've got to, you know, start going down that path of revitalization. But, you know, um, you know, in the end, it all comes down to the same thing. It's all about numbers. How right. can we get more speakers, you know, going? And then how do we make it so that those speakers that we train as second language or even as immersion a first language mm-hmm. raise their kids in that language too? It's a generational process, and this is going to take generations to get through. And uh, it's not, um, you know, it's not a guarantee that every community can do this. We were talking before the, uh, you know, before the show uh, about um, community in in North Dakota where the last speaker died, you know, and how difficult it is to, you know, uh, continue the work. You know, just having a list of words isn't enough. Yeah. We need conversations. We need grammar. How do you teach advanced stuff? How do you talk about idioms? You know that subtle part of language—the jokes, mm-hmm. humor. There's so much, you know, uh, beauty, depth, um, and and uh, you know, fine-grained things that are happening in language. And how do mm-hmm. we maintain and preserve that? And how do we maintain the continuity of that? These are big questions. Yeah. I'm not saying Language Conservancy has all the answers. You know, this is a problem that is worldwide. You don't?
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's what we brought you on for. Well, what are we doing doing here? I'm a bit of a depressing tone right
2: now. But anyway, there are lots of, uh, (laughs) there's, uh, you know, a lot of solutions out there. Um, Yeah. And we, you know, we have some ideas. So I'll throw one out. You guys
1: Yeah, let's hear it. Yeah.
2: So um, one of the things we'd like to see, and we talked about this maybe last week, um, you know, you, you, often we have uh, learners that become really proficient and then they're, you know, they're into their language and they, they want to continue doing it, but then they don't have opportunities to speak with, um, with, you know, their peers. Right. And we, we think, wouldn't it be great if there was like a, a housing development or something uh, that was called like a language village or something like that, where you get really a, everyone's, you know, there and you can get it multi-generational, but the only rule of this, you know, kind of nice housing development you do is that everyone has to speak the language when you're there. Right? right. And you can then get a place there and you create basically like a language village, like a language nest where a safe place right. to, be, to be, you know, a speaker and to raise your kids in it. And cuz you know, we're surrounded by the world of English. You know, they, you they you go to work, you got to use English, you go to school, you go to the store. You know, how do you start creating these spaces where the language can be used again, right? Yeah. I, in pro it's still spoken. You go into the you know, into the grocery store and into the gas stations, you know, you're going to find that. But that's going to start dwindling around, so we need to figure out how to create those safe Places, uh, yeah. Aaron, you were talking about, you know, Pentecostal church. You know, there's other community places where people can still, you know, uh, have a safe place to do that. We need to create more of those.
3: Yeah. The way that the way that, let's clarify. So I wasn't preaching or anything oh. to Will. <laughs> <Like> I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't like. Well, Will, before before we get started here, uh, have you accepted the Lord as <laughs> your? Like I wasn't. I wasn't doing that. I, I was. I was talking about uh, how among the Pentecostal community in Crow, it seems that a lot of them are Crow speakers, which is kind of con contrary to a lot of other places where the Christian movement movement doesn't believe in using that language and stuff. But for some reason in Crow that. Man, if you Mm. want to learn to speak crow, you go hang out with the Pentecostals, you know, and (laughs) (laughs) you'll learn it. (laughs) So uh, that's what I was talking about. So let the record reflect I was not trying to preach.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Behind that, why that is the case, you know,
3: you know, um, it all started now. We get historical right here. Um, A lady named Nellie Stewart and Harold Carpenter, the man they started. They brought in the, the Pentecostal movement, and and at the time, I think to reach more people, they they chose to to continue to speak in Crow, you know, and and it just kind of created almost like the the Crow version of what Christianity is 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 that you speak Crow, and there's like a whole culture around Crow Christianity, which is different than like Christianity anywhere else, you know. And in crow, they call them oilers, like oilers, the ones who use oiler hmm. oil, so people will joke around and they'll call them greasers or call them oil oil oilers or something, you know, but that's what that's what <laughs> it is. the ones who use oil, you know, and that, man, yeah. it's hard to explain. Tim McCleary wrote his master's thesis on crow Pentecostalism, so hmm.
1: yeah, you know that but, that kind of lends. Oh, I'm sorry. Was you done? No, I was done. I was done. I didn't mean,
3: I didn't want this to turn into a Crow Pentecostal episode. That should be its own episode later.
1: (laughs) Okay. Okay. We'll do that. (laughs) So, you know, that lends to the idea that we had chatted about before. I don't know if it's this past one, but we talked about, you know, these language, these pockets where language does exist. And generally it's so associated with some, in some spiritual context. Like for example, around here, we talked about the, the, the wakes and funerals, you know, where you can catch a little bit of the language spoken and go to a funeral. And I think the same is, is true. If you want to catch a little bit of the, the, the language, especially in the, in the songs and the hymns, well you go to Christmas, go to the midnight mass, and you can hear some of the, the, the hymns and the language, you know? So I think that kind of lends to that and w- why that happened. I, you know, I'm not, I'm not too sure. It's just been a part of the, Historical past, I guess, and the way it's progressed. But you know what? Hey, you know we got someone on today as well. That, let let's not uh, let's not forget that. But we've got one of our um, uh, faculty awardees for this year's uh, uh, research award, which is um, given to uh, SKC faculty and adjuncts to help them in their uh, research pursuits in particular, and things that are aligned with the Indigenous, I- Indigenous Research Center's mission. So we've got with us today Aspen Decker, who's an adjunct faculty in the, uh, uh, wh- wh- what would you classify yourself as? Language program? What is it? Let us yeah, know. Yeah, got
5: NASD language specialist,
1: I guess. <laughs> oh, specialist. Or I guess nice. not
5: specialist, <laughs> language teacher.
1: No, I like that. <laughs> Just roll with it yeah specialist. let's go let's go with specialist <laughs> let's go with specialist. i liked it so i mean you you uh you've been on your own uh language journey that's seen some uh, uh quite a bit of success, and um maybe you can um help uh um answer the question or add to will and and bob's uh work on what your journey was and kind of where you're at and what your thoughts are on how do we um Get this language fired up among the people.
5: I don't know. So, um, I think thinking about like the prehistoric context of kind of like what happened um, through historical trauma, that's like kind of where we need to look first is like, what were those issues? And like um, a lot of our elders that gone to boarding schools, you know, the language was forbidden and we weren't able to speak it. And so that was problematic for. um, the perpetuation of Salish language. So a lot of these families are are yayas, are upias. They didn't end up talking to their kids. And so um, it kind of scared them as well because it was like, all right, well, we need to live in this contemporary world. And um, it's like a forbidden, forbidden thing to talk our language and it wasn't something to be proud of. And so a lot of the elders didn't end up teaching their children Um, but then I think that they kind of realized um, that they needed to be teaching their the language and so I think it started to get more passed down in the younger generations and so it ended up skipping like four generations three to four generations Um, but I think that we're kind of learning from um, like their trial and error you know Um, they've had a lot of fails of being a little too harsh when they taught Salish, and so like my moms and like kind of that fifty-year-old age range, they um they were just too harsh on them. It was like, oh, you either say it right or get out of here, you know, like Ech. so mm, yeah, yeah. So they yeah, had yeah. they had to talk right, and that was kind of a turnoff for a lot of people. They were like, well, why should I try to learn when they're just so mean and um you know they ain't encouraging it. And so it was like that. And that's why it kind of pushed a lot of people away. And then um, and then Patalik Papier kind of talked about how they realized how harsh they were being on all these new learners. Mm. So they decided, oh, we need to be nicer and just try to like let them talk. And um, I think that it almost made it a little too nice because then a lot of people yeah. started um just talk very Englishy, you know, like the phonology, the sounds of the language wasn't being articulated correctly. And so um, hmm. I think we just got to kind of learn from that. And it's like, you could teach how to say it correctly. You don't have to, I think, say it like, in a really mean way, it's not like say it right, you know, it could be just repeat yeah. it and make sure that they're articulating it right, explain these sounds and how you say it, you know, in an authentic way. And um, so that's what I try to do now as a language teacher. I taught at Head Start for seven years and at St. Ignatius High School for a year. And um, that really helped me realize how do we bring this ancestral knowledge into these like contemporary times. And so um, I just made up a lot of like fun, interactive games and then thinking about, um, like, how do we keep the main concepts and this, like, integrity of what we want to teach in the classroom. So just, like, coming up with ideas of, like, all right, well, I'm going to teach the bison hunt, for example. Um, I created a game that was about our bison hunt, and so it was, like, all right, well, the Salish people, we were in the Bitterroot, and we had to get to the plains, and so... It's like, well, to get there, it takes a lot of time and effort to get over the mountains. And so I have like the class walk around the classroom a couple of times. So you're being really interactive and having fun with it. And then I chose um, four different hunters. And so they were kind of like the captains of the game. And then the rest of the class was the bison. And so I taught them the different processes of hunting. And so it's like, well, what do you got to know when you go and get your bison? So for Salish people it's like you got to give thanks that's the first thing you do after you kill the animal and so I had I incorporated like Indian sign language too so they had to like make that bone arrow hunting sign to like kill the animal and then they would give thanks with their hand gestures and then say the Salish word mm. as well and then it's like all right well if you don't Um, take the hide off the bison right away, then all the meat goes bad within four hours. And so it's a way to like incorporate real knowledge, real, um, like things that we have to do um, to process these animals. And so it's like, get that hide off, gut it out right away. And then it's like, all right, now you got to cut up the meat, you got to dry it, and then put it away for the winter, and then like scraping the hides. And so they have this like five step process that they Hmm. have to say, salish words and then they had to like uh, make sure that they did it otherwise the bison were able to be like oh i'm alive again and then they kind of run off and so it's-
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's cool <laughs>
5: yeah right, so with the, most, the most bison wins yeah so um, hmm. yeah it was just a really cool way to teach you know indian indigenous knowledge do like a fun Interactive game. And I think another thing to kind of realize is that like these high schoolers and all these kids, they are just kids and they need our guidance. And so um, culture is all taught. It's all learned behavior. And so we just got to know that like, even though things have adapted and a lot of kids are just busy on their social media, they still need to focus on Um, Our culture, you know, and like having that time is really important. And I think it's great that we do have some Salish teachers and NAS teachers. And I think that is like the best platform for us to be able to be like, all right, well, you guys are in this class. And now it's time to put your phones down and you're going to listen because you need to learn about your identity. And then also thinking like, all right, these guys are all about their phones, though. So as long as they give me like a half an hour of quality time, just really listening to Salish hmm. and repeating it. And then I'm like, if you guys all know these 10 words within the half an hour, I'll give you like a 10 minute phone break or something. And so <laughs> that kind of helped. They're like, all right, yeah. I'll listen. And then they got it down. And then I was like, all right, it's time for a break. And um, I think that really helped.
1: Yeah. You know, we had this proposal in one of our uh, discussions was, you know, we, we really ought to bring back, and this way was really effective, you know, really, really effective. We had to bring back like get a bunch of old nuns and bring back a boarding school, <laughs> like a reverse do boarding the reverse school. boarding school.
2: Hey, that, yeah. You guys are not far off at all. The, yeah, you know, yeah. the only language that's ever been uh, brought back yeah. was Hebrew, right? Oh, I mean, they're the most successful language story ever, yeah. right? Really? Right. Really. And they did it just as you said, that they didn't call them boarding schools. They called them language houses. Huh. And kibbutzes, but yeah. in the fifties and 60s, the kids were separated, 40s, 50s, and 60s, the kids were separated from the parents who oh. were speaking you know, German, French, English, Russian, oh, mm-hmm. and um, and were raised in a language house by a second language learner of Hebrew. Wow. And so they were raised in an institution, right, like that. Yeah. And yeah. then when they left, they were you know, full-blown speakers of Hebrew. And That's how they got the whole country speaking Hebrew.
1: Did they whip them? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what they did. But, you know, we have to find I out. That seems like I, an effective I, <laughs> or a deterrent. I don't know. You know, they
2: had uh They all had to like work in the gardens and in the fields. Yeah, it was yeah. in the kibbutz thing. Yeah, it was not a.
1: It wasn't yeah. a picnic
2: that's for sure. I yeah, think.
1: you know, I I got this. Um. Oh, go ahead. What? What's up? Say it. Me? No, no, nothing. Nothing. I didn't have. What you doing? Swallowing? What's going on? I was rolling my eyes. You heard it. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) no, I'm just kidding. No, no, no. So I got this. I got this thing, you know, and it's it's really uh, it's it's like this far off. It becomes even a further, like a further dream when I think about it because I hear a reoccurring theme whenever we talk about language and, and and these things. They're always situated in some institutional schoolhouse type of setting, you know, and that's really, this is what we got. It's that's the reality. But, you know, my, my, my thoughts and my hopes and dreams are that it would be something different. And I'm really interested if, if the language conservancy folks or Aspen uh, on, on, on the podcast here has a, has that same dream or has seen examples of where that works, where, where we're not teaching, you know, things in subjective or not subjective, but in siloed manners. Like today we'll learn about, you know, the history of the tribe, but we'll, we're going to do it in a the language and we're going to do math in the language. So everything's uh, segmented into these these uh, uh, areas of learning where it can be just, a, I don't know, seems like weird, but like an organic type of learning. I don't know. Yeah. You guys get what I'm the saying? Math. No, I know math. what you mean. We were, yeah.
2: It would be called a language medium. Uh, school, you know, so that means that all the subjects are in that language, yeah. And that would curriculum has to be developed, but you need the teachers to do that. That's but one if, of the things we don't have. It's one of the yeah. biggest bottlenecks: is enough qualified teachers to it, teach. Yeah. Them how Shandine,
4: were you referring? You were referring to something other than that, though, right? Well,
1: something yeah. I mean, structure. So um, yeah. So where the term school doesn't come into, you know, when we think school, we think yeah, this these subject matters and. Uh, a building kids go into yeah, that's, with four walls. That's, or, actually yeah, go ahead what I,
5: that's actually exactly what I've been thinking for the last few years is that we do need to like um, make at least a building or something that has our values and our, our architecture, you know, where it's like either a long house or something. Yeah. I think taking a look at like the Kalispell um, model, they have a language nest and so their kids, like almost all of them get to go to this language nest and school for the morning part of the day and then the rest they go back to like the public schools um so i think that's really cool and i thought that if if we had like these salish teachers that are in our public schools it'd be great to at least have a classroom where you could like kind of take away the four corners of the the classroom and just try to make it more of like a teepee type thing and Um, I think that all these reservation schools, they should have um, the option to send your kids through like this language, cultural classroom that also has like Western um, integrations, you know, but as well as being able to be taught kind of in the language and having a time that's specifically for teaching our ways of knowing and our um, indigenous pedagogies for teaching kids, you know, and, and using like oral stories and not, Just being like, all right, these are the colors and these are how you count to 10 in Salish. Like those are things that just haven't worked in the past. And um, what's it really teaching our kids is what I always tell teachers is by the time they're high schoolers is all they could say about their people and their language is, oh, I know how to count to 10 in my language and I know colors it's like that's not what they need to know, they need to know. <laughs> yeah <laughs> like for, yeah like, actual identity and like what it is to be salish and you know our culture yeah so i think, I think yeah it's on its own
3: I th- yeah maybe bob was gonna say something though were, were you gonna say something bob
5: um no, no
4: go ahead i'm just thinking about what she was talking
3: we're not bu- yeah. we're not bullying you bob are we not yet okay
1: Do you guys feel bullied? No.
3: (laughs) Do you feel bullied?
1: (laughs) Are you targeted?
3: (laughs) Are we triggering anything? No. No. Okay. Okay. (laughs) No, I guess what I was going to say was um, uh, at some point, though, we can't subcontract the duties of a tribe to any academic institution. We just can't do it. And I think we seem to rely heavily on this idea that things ha- the schools have to be on board in order for something to be successful and yeah it's nice when the when the school supports the ideas of a community but man it's i just don't see success in that yet you know i don't see what i see is when the community takes the initiative to make it work that's when it works and and many yeah. times i see the excuse that it's like well, the schools are obligated to teach these languages. Yeah, but at the same time, so are <laughs> you. You know what I mean. So is your right. mom and your grandma. You guys have to learn it too. If you're, if we're holding the school districts up to the standard of every school needs to have Indian education and language, well, that that applies to your home as well.
1: Yeah,
4: you know yeah, we can't. Exactly. You're absolutely right, and I was thinking about that with when we were talking about a little bit about the dictionary that I'm working on last week and and also linguistics and how it's it's you know is this it's really does it really teach the language? Do these you know having these words in a dictionary, um, you know what? How much does that really advance uh, literacy of the language or oral literacy of the language? Mm-hmm. And you know it's just uh, it's just one tool, it's just one little tool, and it has right. to, it really has to be there? A dictionary has to be you know as correct a, as it can be. And, mm-hmm. but it's just one little cog in a machine, you know, that has, that has to be right. there. The schools have to be there, but the community has to be first. I mean, you know, just like asking yeah. to, to, you know, all, and Shandine, these things are just, you know, I learned how to count to 10 in my language. Great. You know, but it doesn't do anything. It doesn't do anybody any good, but yeah. um, you know, that, that kind of fundamental count to 10, Needs to be there, but the social, you know, learning how to speak socially in your language, somehow outside mm-hmm. of the school environment, has to be there too. You know, I, I learned English reading stories that didn't necessarily have to do with my immediate culture of growing up in Central Indiana. Uh, there was all these, you know, s- you know, animal stories and whatnot. I mean, I think, I think we need all of that,
2: and
4: we need a way to talk about. You know, just to shoot, you know,
6: shoot after you get out of school and talk about something, you know. You know, uh-huh. uh, yeah, the thing I, that to, makes me think of what that. context you
4: yeah. get it, if you it it's going to be good, you know.
6: Yeah. Well, yeah. So I was just going to jump in there. All right. Oh, so it didn't work very well. Break right, us but, up. So, no, 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 no. Just that idea of um, like maybe the, the trouble with um, or maybe a part of the trouble with trying to think about um, having the school do stuff. This idea that like kids learn English in schools. Well, I mean, I guess I would say that you learned how to read by reading those things or you learned how to write. You came to school already knowing English,
2: right? They
6: have English subjects and there's maybe like a little bit of vocabulary you get along the way, but most of the language, I think, I mean, and maybe this is just my perspective, I think that my parents and my family and my friends taught me to speak English. I don't think that my English teacher did it. Um, they, they taught me rules about how I should use it. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, exactly. So, I mean, I, I think that definitely um, it would be great to have um, culture and language and first Students to like see a part of their identity reflected in the regular school systems, that would be great. I'm sure their experience would be that much better. But mm-hmm. I do think that there's something to this that if we try and place all of that there, then, I mean, we're we're almost reducing this thing to um, like the math lessons you learn the history lessons you learn and in the context is, is so totally different. It shouldn't be, it shouldn't be something that um, is peer reviewed and published in a journal. <laughs> right? It, right. It doesn't have, I mean, you can fit it there, but it's really out of place. So this mm-hmm. kind of idea about having a, a community context, having a family context, I mean, that, that's what I imagine would have a, a huge difference or make a huge difference.
1: yeah, if that, yeah. You know, I, I, I I agree. Um, you know what i I think just going all the way back to will will's comment about you know we there there are some I think some foundational things that we need. You know, we need teachers, even if that teacher is in the context of a of a public school structure, uh, some tribally derived public education structure, or maybe even something different. I think that the fact remains, or the 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 reality is, we need teachers, someone to teach, mm-hmm. no matter how that mode of teaching is. And uh, among that, we also need content for those teachers to utilize, whether that's a book. Whether that's something they pick up in their own learning about how to teach, but we need, mm-hmm. we do need material, and I see this idea that you know that I first thought of, you know, or not, I wasn't the one who thought of it, but that I think of, I guess, the <laughs> one you guys are all, uh, you just copying my idea. No, the, <laughs> this idea I think that many people share. You know, it, I to get to it is is it's incremental. And it brings up this other issue that I that I heard reflected in um, uh, our earlier conversation about time, you know, and and again, I'm going to echo something we had talked about previously about this idea of sitting down with interested folks and saying, okay, let's come up with a plan, and then that plan becomes this this trudging process to say, okay in five years, we'll have X goal met in 10 years. We'll have X goal met in 60 years, you know? So we're planning out in a timescale. That's not really in alignment with what I think is reality for tribal people where we're really operating in an annual basis, like from this year to the next. And I think that, um, trying to fit this idea and others into a timescale that doesn't really, it's not really a reality. I don't think fits. So, that really shoots down my whole idea about we should do things incrementally, but <laughs> how do we fit that in a year's time? You know, I shot myself in the foot because we can't do it. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. And I don't know if any everybody shares that sentiment.
5: Yeah, I Go think ahead. it's vital that we, that we teach um, in a more like salish way than just having any old person create a curriculum because just looking at the curriculum that we have now it's like it was created by a non-member a non um a non-speaker so he was just like a second language speaker um i mean i it was really great like it really helped a lot of people learn language but a lot of it was based around like this western methodology of teaching and it is right. problematic because you're not really learning the context of what our traditions are. And if you're, if you're not learning in this like kind of immersion way of learning, then it's going to change the language because you're learning it in this very Western sense. And a lot of times too, like Salish spoken verb, object, subject. So it's like running did Aaron, you know, things like that. So it was all changed around to being yeah. like pretty much the verb at the end and that wasn't the way that we naturally talked it was almost always verb first and so it's great that we have people like um, Shirley Trahan some of our elders who have actually gone through and they made sure they did all the corrections to getting it back to being verb first Um, and so yeah I think the next steps for me too is I'm wanting to teach and then learn um, I guess I'm not learn I guess uh create a curriculum that is based around our yearly round. And so that's kind of what I did with the whole sign language curriculum. It's what it was, um, like, posed of how did we sign, you know, it wasn't just like saying, oh, my name is this, like you were saying, like, kind of those basic things. It's more like, well, as an Indigenous person, it seems like we always say who we are, you know, that's like one of the most important things is saying what tribe you're from. And so that's kind of one of the early on lessons, It's like how to say your people. So it's a lot of the neighboring tribes and um there's like verbs and ways to just get to signing you know and having something tangible to be able to start communicating right away and I think it is important to also have those games like I was talking about so you're really using these signs and a lot of it was done through trade so it should be taught that way it shouldn't just be like this is the way you make a whiteboard sign you know it's like
1: (laughs) (laughs) What's the sign? Yeah. Yeah. What's the sign for a dry erase marker?
6: (laughs) See, I think that's what happens though when you have the language taught in a school. I mean, they teach you how to say chair and they teach you how to say marker and pen and whiteboard and eraser and all this stuff. Right. And so, kind of what I was thinking about was I remember, um, I think, Aaron, you were talking about or maybe somebody else but th- this idea that um kind of some like fundamental things that that would go along with a culture i mean you, you, um Shandine, you're making all of these um conversations we're having um start off with song and so i'm thinking about vocabulary that most people have for for songs i don't think mm. that that's there's the name for a couple of songs but not a lot of vocabulary for for songs and in music in the curriculum and things like um because ceremony doesn't really fit in school we don't have vocabulary for that we don't have a lot of vocabulary for like taking a sweat and how many students who are trying to learn know how to do this this is a conversation i was having with My dad, he was really surprised by how younger people who were um, wanting to learn language and culture, how many of them hadn't had those experiences. And Mm -hmm. so, I mean, how many... um, We have a lot of people who do, um, uh, like, let's say, say, beadwork or food gathering, hunting, You know, all of these things and and finding a way to um, connect what bits of, like, this cultural heritage we have that we still practice and language. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a context right there. Right. And, I mean, I'm not sure what you guys think about that or how, how that would connect, but at least it's um and again i mean i'm a teacher so i'm not trying to like completely tear down schools and say that's really really bad but i mean we're we're kind of pointing out that it doesn't yeah create the best setting all the time for the kind of language learning we're talking about
2: i I totally agree i mean there's um in the end you know there's a lot of ways to learn language you know there's a lot of ways to skin a cat they say you know but in the end you've got to still have that commitment and that discipline to get through it. And it's always easier if you have people with you because language speaking is a social thing, you know, Mm -hmm. purely social. There's no other reason to do it except to communicate with some other human being in that same way. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we, you know, you want that group, you want that family like that around you moving forward with the language and that's going to keep you focused on it. And then, um, and, I, you know, however you get there is, is great. There's people who say, you know, I learned it from the dictionary or I learned it from this method or I learned it from that method. I think there's a lot of people learning in a lot of different ways. And we just want to create a world where, you know, there's no excuse not to learn it anymore because there's a lot of stuff out there now to use it, you yeah. know, whether it's textbooks or the dictionary or, the, you know, the, uh, the, the immersion settings and camps and all that.
1: Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like there's um been a a big push to you know create a lot of a lot of tools and I think that's good. You know, the the more we have the the more um options people have to learn and um you know, I've heard a lot about this um this dictionary that you guys have been working on over in uh with the with the crow and I've heard that it's um been a pretty useful tool but um, let uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about the, that dictionary
4: uh, yeah I'm seeing you know in the past you know, the dictionary you're referring to the online one is going to change radically in the next couple of months so uh, I've seen a great amount of success with you know what we we're doing as far as additions to it uh, it's going to be on a mobile platform it's going to be a lot more dynamic in many ways than is uh, I talked a little bit about the word breakdowns that we're doing with it so every word will be broken down broken down into its smaller parts and mm. those will be linkable to um, its adjoining entry in the dictionary you know so you can hmm. you know how crow words are they can be like really long and when I first started looking at this language it's like so intimidating to see these words because they're like humongous once hmm. you learn how each one of these little parts, you know, fit in, it just makes it so much easier because you know what those, you know, you know what that morphemic parts mean. And if you have a dictionary where it's dynamic enough where you can just click on that on that part of the morphine breakdown and it'll take you to another entry, um, it's just, it's kind of like, I don't know, when I was a kid and probably we were all the same with dictionaries, I mean, English dictionary, I don't know you have, to, you have to say, but I could just spend you know, hours just browsing through it. And that was a paper dictionary to me with like a digital dictionary, it's just even that much deeper because you can just keep clicking into stuff and and exploring and going deeper and deeper. You can start, you start at this point, well, I'm going to look up this word. And then hours later, you're going to be looking up all these different words because there's different ways to find them. Um, so I'm just hoping, you know, when this does come out, that it's just going to be a lot, it's just going to be a, a really a, just a great aid to the learner. You know, it's not going to, it's not going to replace, you know, it's not going to be the end all of language learning by any means, but it's just going to be another really good tool. Um, that hmm. there, yet, so, for growing. Like that. You know, the Lakota dictionary is, is very, very robust and, hmm has the same type of linkage with uh, you know how the words break down and you can you can you can uh, click on just a small part of that word and it'll take you to the entry for that you know so it just kind mm-hmm. of it, Will's holding it up' <laughs> uh, yeah, it just can- kind of um, you know explore the language that way and
1: find yeah out,
4: you know yeah to me it's just it's just one more tool you know it's not going to make you fluent no but it's going to yeah. aid, it's gonna aid your fluency if you're already if you're already yeah. doing classes, if you're already in some type of cohort or have some of your peer groups that you're getting together with a couple hours hours a day to speak, you know, that's, yeah. that's really, really where it's going to come from is getting together with other people and trying to speak.
1: Mm-hmm.
5: That's really cool, because Salish is a polysynthetic language, so it's just pretty much all these affixes, lexical affixes that are, like, right. combined right. together, so a dictionary like that would just be amazing to have, that right. way we could break I was it
4: up. you were talking about, um, did they make, like, total syntactical changes to your language? Because there was, you're saying it's it's like verb, uh, object, noun, object or verb, subject. noun, but they, they... Change the whole sentence pattern
5: around. Yeah, I mean, oh God, like I it, so. it could occur in like three different ways. You could either do the verb object subject subject object object verb, but the the way that it used to be prehistorically was always the verb object subject. So yeah, it did get changed around, and then it became like the new normal to have it in kind of like an English.
4: How long context. ago did they do that?
5: Uh, let's see, about eight years ago. Really? Wow. Our elders changed or one of our elders like went through and she really corrected a lot of it. And so I was going to write a paper on it, saying how like this language change occurred because of um, the way that the sentences are being formatted. But then as I went through the curriculum to like kind of cite out of it, I'm like, oh, she changed it in the new version, so it's pretty great. <laughs> it
4: was changed in the curriculum, but people didn't actually. You know, elders didn't. There were you know, obviously they're still speaking the same way they always had.
5: Yeah, so- a lot of the elders they kind of just let people start talking because they were just like, "All right, well, you're kind of talking very basic, you know," and so they would just allow this intransitive and um, like wrong formats, you know, even though they didn't really talk like that. Okay. Very often. Yeah.
4: At first, I thought it's something happened a long time ago when you said that, but
1: yeah, well, didn't for- that that kind of didn't that kind of method or that way of teaching didn't that start back in the 70s is that right I mean that's kind of where it started or is that is that more recent am I not understanding it correctly or
5: yeah I think that a lot of that was just teaching only vocab and so it never really got complex enough to like really put a whole phrase together or at least that I know you know, it seemed like a lot of people were just like very basic and they weren't ready for that next step anyway. So there was never any curriculum really made. Um, but yeah, yeah, it was made. It was made kind of incorrectly.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, this is probably a good time. We should probably take a little break. Let's listen to this next uh, piece and then we'll launch into the next uh, bit of our podcast here. I know we're, we're already 50 minutes in. So let's uh, let's check this out. Are you guys ready? I know Aaron's ready. He's always ready. Look at him, game face, game face, lips puckered. <laughs> yeah. And Will, are you are you still on the road? Are you still on the road? You look like you're in a hotel room, whereas you just got a really good. Oh yeah, I'm
2: in a um, I'm in Vancouver, Canada.
1: All right, cool, man. All right, let's listen to this. Here we go.
0: Oh, hey, oh, oh,
1: So again, this was uh, Agnes Vanderburg, and uh, she's singing this um, this song that she learned from her Sile, which is her maternal grand grandfather. His name was uh, Martin, and his last name was uh, Scott and um, he was born in the eighteen fifties. Around that time, so he was uh he was kind of around during the tail end of the buffalo hunting days. Uh, but you know this song. Apparently the way she describes it was uh he was uh one of his uh his saddle horses kind of got hurt and was crippled up pretty bad so he was he intended to turn him loose and you know let him go let his uh his usefulness was done i i suppose but i guess uh later that evening he heard that song coming from the horses so he went and scoped it out and Sure enough, his horse, his old saddle horse was singing that song. And then he told him that horse told, told, uh, this, this person would have been my great, great, great grandfather, told him that, you know, I'm going to be all right. And, you know, we're going to, I'm going to heal up and we'll, we'll travel again. And so eventually, uh, that horse did recover. It become one of his, one of his best saddle horses. Apparently is the story that goes along with that. But, um. You know that this this story and this song are are pretty important, and um, just like in the rest of our podcasts, you know, we've been examining the importance of of songs and singing in in this research paradigm that we're we're formulating. And um, it it got me to wonder, and we've talked about it a little bit. You know, we talk about uh, ceremonialism and language, but really, how how you know, do our the powers of our ancestors which were which were given for very specific reasons and reasons in those days, such as curing ailments and broken bones and diseases and that were common. However, we got this new problem, this new this new dilemma of language loss, traditions of loss, but we really don't have the the power or the medicine in, in a spiritual way to to handle that or remedy that. So I'm wondering from the the language conservancy folks, if you've encountered, you know, the people you've worked with, you know, speak of that or talk of, you know, tying in spirituality to assist with this endeavor. That's kind of my question I wanted to ask to you guys. So if anybody's got commentary, jump on in. I think
2: it absolutely is a spiritual endeavor, you know, You feel it when you're, you know, every class, every meeting, every event, institute, you know, is done in the right way, started with a prayer uh, or with a song and the honoring of uh, the elders with a song. And Hmm. that protocol, you know, just, um, you know, is, is injected into every aspect of language learning. And makes the entire endeavor, you know, a way of self-improvement, actually. You know, language, we use that expression, like, language will change your life, you know, and yeah. that's part of it, right? And it's not, we don't separate out the, the spiritual from the, the pedagogical, necessarily. Right. You know what I mean? It's all part of the same effort to become a better person.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: and uh, in some ways language is just a vehicle for for, for that
1: right right so and so you're speaking uh, um, from experience with working with the Lakotas or is this, is this a specific tribal group or
2: I mean I think we've worked longest with Lakotas uh, okay. but we work with um, about 40 languages all across uh, U.S. and Canada and Australia and there's a lot of commonalities, of okay. course, and some many differences, but, and as I mentioned, there's, uh, you know, there's a lot of, there's a whole constellation of issues, um, you know, when it comes to language, uh, whether it's, um, you know, how much trauma was, in, was inflicted on that community to how mm-hmm. well the language was documented to the number of speakers and you know the average age of speakers and all of those factors is a huge yeah. number of schools. Do you control your own schools? Do you not. Do you have? Um, is there funding available? Many many kind of variables. Yeah. In that, and um, you know we have to kind of meet uh, the communities where they are with that. Yeah. And again addressing those problems on a case by case basis. There's not a you know silver bullet or any single solution out there. There's a whole uh, you know, array of tools and right. methods that we use when we work with communities. And so, hmm. uh, but to be, to your, to your answer, yeah, the, the with Lakotas, it's, you know, there's a, they're further down the road on that front because of a lot of things that have happened. Um, mm-hmm. but at the same time, every community has, uh, its strengths. Uh, Crow is in a fantastic place because of the, you know, relative number of speakers. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, you know, there's other communities out there. Of course, uh, Diné and uh, Arizona is in a great place. Uh, mm-hmm. A few others, Tohono O'odom, um, yeah, that could have a, a good chance. And of course, others you know, don't. So, yeah. Uh, but in the end, there's a lot of the same things that you know you all talked about. Uh, it's about community and it's about creating mm-hmm. that. And even with the smallest group and the smallest language, even for languages that the last speaker died, you know, twenty years ago, that doesn't mean it's you know it's not impossible yeah. to bring it back. You can still do it, Yeah. And people have done it. And you just have to be super committed to it. It's harder, but you can still do it.
1: Yeah, I'm one. I'm wondering, uh, Will, just to kind of follow up a little bit. Have you encountered a um, any of you any of the folks you've worked with where? That spirituality and in that um, connection to the to this kind of a entity of power or, or what have you has, has that never been involved? Like it was completely gone, and it was never even a part of the the efforts.
2: I think um, you know we as a organization you know um, kind of w- would always want to support you know. a uh, an indigenous perspective on language yeah. no matter what and if it doesn't even exist if the even if the prayers are in english or if they're christian prayers that's fine you know right it all has to be done one way or another i think is uh, right. again it's a journey to uh to recover language and i think uh, those protocols need to be followed
6: right
5: um, yeah, so I think that with spirituality, um, it's always included in our language learning and everything that we do. Like, you know, it's kind of part of who we are. And even when we talk about language, um one of our elders, smoke butt, um, Stan Bluff, he mentioned that our language is a spirit and it's just waiting, you know, on the uh, the outside of our doors and it's a matter of us asking that language spirit to come to us and, you know, give us give us the ability to speak the language. And so I think we always end up praying and, and asking that these, our language comes to us because to us, it is an animate object. It is an animate spirit that we believe in. And we know that um, there's like a song to our language, our rhythms. And I try to use that even in my yeah. the- Sticks um ma program when i i did a paper on salish syllable structures and um instead of using like the english clapping um salish and Blackfoot and a lot of native languages they don't really have that same um like, rhyme is, like, English, where it's, like, every three seconds, like, camera, you know, like, the native, uh, our Salish syllables, you kind of follow this, like, pattern, and there's stressing that's kind of in the middle of the words. And so I ended up using one of the stick game songs, Salish stick game songs, that song, you know, that we sing at, uh, Yeah. Game, and so it really helped me go through all of these lists of words. I had like four pages of just vocabulary words, and I was finding yeah. where the syllable break was, and just singing that song. I was able to whip through that entire that entire like four pages within just like that three minutes of singing that song, because it just yeah. helped really figuring out where those breaks were. And then I also used like our drum just like the beats of those songs, like that kind of helped um, figure out kind of the rhythm too. Mm. So it was really cool to bring kind of our indigenous perspective, our songs into this like Western setting. And it, it made yeah. our language um, like rhythms kind of come out, you know, it, it wasn't that we try to like sing some ABC song or something. Like it's not going to it's yeah. not gonna go well with our language. It's, it's about using our tones and even like mocking, it's a big thing in, you know, Salish peoples. And just by mocking, you could tell where that stressing's at. And so that really kind of shows you those breaks and how our rhythm works. And so that's where that spirituality kind of comes into play with language and pretty much everything we do.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We talked about that briefly last time about, um, and I think Will or, or I think it was Bob talked about the language and the hip hop the more hip hop type of songs, and um, you know, I'm I'm a firm believer in 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 that idea where if you can if you can get kids to start singing Indian songs with Indian words, by golly, you know that you're gonna catch them. You're gonna catch them. <laughs> by, golly, by golly, you're gonna golly. catch them. Um, you know we we hear a lot of we hear a lot of that work done. But like I said in the last episode, it's, it's very nursery rhymey and very um, non-traditional from a Native perspective. So that, that seems to be the connection that I see between this idea of spirituality and how we can use that, you know, the power of our ancestors, which seemed to be pretty pretty effective in those days in that context. But, you know, how do we, how do we use that same, those same gifts today of course there's a long process even to gain those kind of gifts but how, how do we use those in a modern context to handle issues such as this and i don't I don't know if it's suited to do that but I really see that like will was saying it's it's very they're very well associated across the tribes he's worked with where spirituality and language learning are, are very closely matched just just intuitively I think and, and that makes sense because i I see it as a You know, as a as a answering or a calling, as our ancestors or our elders would say, you know that you you get a calling to do something. It's not just you. There's something behind it, something pushing you to do that. And so I really see that as something as an effective tool. But but really getting getting our young people to be proficient and knowledgeable in culture, even without language, I think is equally as important because then that's kind of the hook. And we've talked about that before. So pairing these two and even pairing the cultural learning or the tradition learning without language, I think is, is, should be equally important because I think that's the pathway to the desire to know more. And I don't know if you've I've seen that happen or that uh, kind of process unfold in your work. Yeah. That's where I you see jump in and say, oh yeah, I have jokes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know I think Bob needs to. uh, Oh, I cut it out in the in the podcast. But go ahead, go ahead, go.
5: (laughs) I was gonna say, especially like when um, when people first start going like to our medicine dances, our winter dances, like you know they feel something and they get inspired by it, and they might not know the language at that time, you know, but they're wanting to learn about the culture, and then with time, they end up wanting to learn about the language. So I think you're right on that. Like as long as they get introduced to it they're gonna fill that like sense of belonging to our culture and I think that that's just gonna help them to right. want more so
1: yeah so I'm wondering then will and Bob if you've seen a resurgence a, a pairing of resurgence in in ceremonialism along with along with the 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 progress in language learning or or do you have any experience in that area
2: yeah so of course you know the I think it's, it's like a cart and horse a little bit at the boat, you know, it's like push and pull. Like there's been a, a huge resurgence in Sundance in Lakota country, you know, from early seventies where there were just one or two, you know, Frank fool's crow and several others that had theirs. And then it, now there's hundreds. Wow. Uh, and, yeah. um, I think, you know, as people get, um, you know, part of that community, uh they um you know want to be able to pray and do all of that in the language so it becomes part of the motivating factor for languages you know aspen and other people talked about there's even a a sundance there that uh, you're not even allowed to use english Mm. Mm. at all right and Mm. there's no non-members allowed at all either of course and then so there's some very more strict ones and i think for those strict ones there's even another motivation right hey they're not even going to let me in unless I can say my prayer, you know, right. in language. So but I think it's right. a little bit of that in, as well. And, um, you know, um, learning the songs is, you know, just a wonderful way of, you know, doing that. And I think that, uh, you know, it's, again, it's a big motivating factor.
1: Right. Right. Bob, what about you? Have you had an experience in that area? Or you see that as a trend?
4: Um, just from talking to other people from hearing you know, from just from some of the things that Aaron's told me and and yeah, you know, I not out in the field uh quite as much as Will is. so he sees a lot more, but I do right. think that it has become more of a popular thing and more of a trend, and I think it's really necessary for that to continue um, yeah you know, to keep yeah. That language growing,
1: yeah. Yeah, I, I I agree, and I think I see that it reflected here too. Where where we're from is we we see that trend of um, people leaning toward or feeling that responsibility to use the language more, especially in that ceremonial context. And I think that really wraps back around to what Aaron was talking about this Pentecostalism. And and I don't know if the folks who are involved in that feel that same urge, or maybe it's just so prevalent in that that they um. You know, feel like they have to speak the language in in those contexts. Um, but uh, yeah, so Kamiya or, or Aspen, you have anything additional to add to that particular question? I know we've talked about this quite a bit about the resurgence of spirituality, but how how do you think that uh, should play a role, or how it can further a role in language learning, besides what you've already yeah, said? I
5: think- I think with like um, me as a teacher, <laughs> I've noticed that, um, that like you don't really want to teach the wrong context either, you know, with these songs. Right. And so, like, you wouldn't want to just start singing a jump dance song, even if it's during like, you know, kind of the winter time and in a classroom settings, because then it's right. just, you know, it's making them think like, oh, we could jump around and like, this is what this song's for. But it's like you really need to have that contents of, context of being there at the long house or wherever right. it is, you know, and like all these protocols. So I try not to like use too many um, spiritual songs there, you know, if it's more of like sticking powwow, yeah. I think, good. or just kind of going based off of our genre of how we have our beats and what types of songs they are, and then creating um, songs for certain things that I'm teaching. So like about the bitter dig, instead of using some English right. song, I try to use like, a pow type song and then just adding in language of like, we're going out, we're going out to go dig Bitterroot. We're going to dig up this Bitterroot. We need to like clean it. So there's like four verses to the song that's talking about going out to get the Bitterroot, digging it, cleaning it, drying yeah. it, and put it away. And so it's still kind of keeping sort of that integrity of how we sing songs The tones of it are beats, right? but yet it's not taking an actual song that already has significance and bringing it into a classroom setting.
1: Right, right. So I I don't think, Will, I don't think you see Sundance classes in Lakota Territory, (laughs) right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Um,
2: Not at all, but, you know, again, (laughs) there's a language for – you know I think there's every um and I agree you know obviously with Aspen, I don't think there's any schools or instructors that are going to be teaching those things, uh, but yeah they go to find mentors and find people to um, to help them uh, with that, and that's how they you know find make that social connection to language outside of a school setting
1: yeah yeah that yeah so that wraps back around to this idea of. Man, how do we, how do we get it, get it, depart it from this idea of the school to where, yeah, that is the thing. It's not a Sundance class, but it's preparing for that thing. But yeah, I don't know. Then you think, you think, well, it has to be formalized in some way. But I don't know. Does it? I don't know. Yeah, Whenever like I, think I think about this, I. Beat. Yeah. Go ahead. What?
5: I said. Yeah, I think like you could teach the beat of like jump dance songs and like you could kind of let them sort of jump around to a different type of song and like they're like oh this is like kind of what we do and we like hear this beat you know like it's kind of preparing them right. to like go t- jump dance
1: right 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 what are you what are you doing there Aaron folding clothes did you get in trouble <laughs> he's folding clothes <laughs> he can't even hear me he's folding clothes uh oh, cripes
2: you know one of the interesting things that i've i've learned seen is like you know people like buying the tapes or the cds of the different songs yeah Studying them you know and learning the songs from that and reading the liner notes and all of that i think is a common trend yeah particularly in some communities i've noticed there's like a very popular singer that uh you know did a cd or or a song of you know sacred songs and it was it's you know Over the course of 25 years, you hear a lot of variation in how that song is sung. Yeah. And it's interesting to hear when people are learning it from tapes and CDs and things like that, how they all start to align to how this one person sings that song. Right. Uh, And then it's kind of like a whole, you know what I mean? There's a, like someone mentioned that everyone, you know, there's a way of, you know, if you just speak like one person, well, you can also sing like one person, right? Right. Right. That uh, has an impact also on the community, but yet it's a multiplier, you know, learning, you know, a CD or a song that's, you know, on a thing is a is a multiplier. There's thousands of people who have listened to that, just like liter- literature is a multiplier.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, Aaron confirmed, yes, he is folding clothes. <laughs> so I <laughs> think... I think this might be a good time to wrap it up if we got Aaron doing chores <laughs> while we're recording a podcast. <laughs> Let's, uh, unless some, anybody's got any final thoughts.
2: I think one
4: thing will mention earlier about English being just so pervasive everywhere. You know, it's on the radio, it's on television, it's in the stores you go to. I, I you know, I'm thinking back about socialization and learning a language. And, you know, of course, I learned from my parents and from school, but I also learned a lot of English from television and from radio. Um, yeah. And I just don't know. I mean, I, it, it just, I think there just needs to be that immersion in, in other ways than just school and other ways be right. just family or ceremony. And I'm not sure how to, you know, that's. That's just one way to just, yeah, you know, to make it pervasive. And I don't, I don't know how to get certain languages to that point, you know. Yeah, that's the. So now, you know, I mean, as far as it's like having having uh, radio stations where it's just all in the language, or.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, like language is. You gotta express everything in language. You gotta right. express the profane and the sacred. You gotta be able to do it all. Right. 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 Uh, dirty jokes and prayers, right? The whole <laughs> thing. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. and, you know, at the same time, uh, and, and it it can do it all, right? You yeah. can't just pigeonhole the language as just one thing. It's gotta do it all. It's gotta be able to do the, the economics, it's gotta do the politics, it's gotta do the the gossip, the jokes, the, you know, the stories, the the new and the old, all of that. And I don't know, like, you know, countries that have been able to to succeed in doing it, it it would, you know, like you look at Israel, it's like, there there was a law, right. That says you cannot have any sign except in Hebrew. You can't, Mm. you're not going to go into politics except with Hebrew. You're not going to, you know, we're going to, basically ban every other language, right. A pretty, mm-hmm. pretty harsh set of rules. And, right. you know, technically, you know, uh, reservation community could do something like that down yeah. the road, you know, but everyone's got to be ready for that. Right. But it takes a kind of a, a, heavy duty level of, of, um, policy and everyone behind it. And, you know, it, it becomes a movement that, you know, the, the Hebrew came back with a movement called Zionism, right, which was that whole idea that, you know, they were chosen people and that they're going to live according to the, um, the the traditional ways, and it became a strong motivating factor uh, that way. And, um, you know, I think there a lot of people need to, at least a majority, need to get be there in order for those kind of who would give up american or english uh, television at this point or
0: right. social
2: media or yeah. going to movies or newspapers or magazines or any of that right How, who's ready to give that up yet you know someone people need to be at a point ready to give that up or at least be able to mitigate it somehow so you can still have a safe place for your language
1: right some some bootleg netflix
2: watching
1: yeah yeah well i think that's a good uh that's a, a good way to end this uh recording here unless aspen or kamii have anything else to add um we can uh we can wrap her up for the night kami you good still there
6: oh yeah i'm good
1: Okay. (laughs) I know Aaron got the boot. He's, his internet failed him. So, um, but you know, thanks again, you guys, Will and Bob, you know, we really appreciate you guys taking the time and um, we're going to spread the word about your guys's work. Hopefully we can tie into some folks that uh, we know would be interested in the things you do. And, you know, man, we need you here too. We need you here. Will, come on over across the border, help us out. thanks (laughs) Thanks. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so um a lot of work and I think you guys know that more than more than anybody. So again, thanks and also thanks Aspen for taking the time out to join us. Um plenty plenty more to talk about issues of language learning here locally. So hopefully we'll have you back and we'll we'll get some other folks in who've been involved in this um effort and we can have a nice little cry session about where we're at. <laughs> I don't know if we'll cry about it, but anyway thank you for joining us on this episode and to learn more you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at IRCSKC you can find us also on Facebook and YouTube by searching SKC Indigenous Research Center you can also visit our website at IRC.skc.edu Don't forget to join us next time as we continue our discussions on indigenous research, indigenous research methodologies, and indigenous worldviews.